Today's sermon text is 1 John chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 2. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 1021. Hear the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There we go. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you now. Your word is open. Now make it true of our hearts. Humble us now so that we don't miss what you're saying in your word. Will you, will you humble us this morning in such a way that we would forsake all of our pretense and all of our pretending? Overcome our stumbling, our stubborn hearts this morning. Wash away all self-loathing as well. Certainly many of us have carried in here heavy burdens that we were not meant to carry. Would you cause us to care only about what you're saying in your word in the next moments that we have together? Your word will stand. So even as we leave today, continue speaking to us through your word. In the name of your son and by your spirit, we pray all these things together. Amen. I love this church. I love Philadelphia Baptist Church. Hopefully that's not a surprise uh, to many of you. Uh, my family's been here for eight years now. And uh, we hope to be here for many, many more years. Many of you have been here much longer than eight years. Uh, and then it's so exciting to see all the new families that have come just in the last few weeks and uh, last few months. And um, so I suppose that many of you love Philadelphia Baptist Church. Um, now, suppose that uh, one Sunday morning you arrive and you notice that there are several families who are gone from here. Families that you knew would just be there. They're always going to be there. They'll always be in Philadelphia Baptist Church on Sunday mornings. And, the, and there are a few of the elders who are gone as well. And then some of the deacons have also left. And they actually went across the street to start another church. And you found that out. How would you feel? How would you feel if it seemed like that group seemed to be growing rapidly? That whatever they were doing, whatever they knew that we didn't know, whatever they had was working and whatever here, obviously people had left. Something was wrong here. So how would that make you feel? 
There was excitement a few blocks away, but there was sadness in this room. It's it's hard not to wonder what did they what did they have? What were the pastors doing over there? What was causing them to to grow in such a way? And where was their confidence coming from? They were so excited. So in today's text, John is writing to a group of people that had experienced something like that. But even more volatile than that, they were a relatively young church. Christianity, if you remember, was just, this is a, a, a new religion, so to speak. It had just started and, and this was a relatively young church. And the message of Christianity was beginning to sprout out, uh, sprout up all over the place. And certainly they started wondering, what are we missing? What did the group that left have that we don't have? What did they know that we don't know? Perhaps they thought, we've gotten something wrong here. And a part of that painful split that happened was that those who left seemed to have such confidence about themselves. There was a certain arrogance and a certain spiritual haughtiness among this group we read, actually, it's kind of like a movie. If you pull, come into a movie and you start a movie and you, the first scene, it opens and it's a, it's a guy that's he's just extremely sad. He's by, them, he's by himself. And you don't know what's happened. And only 30 minutes into the movie, 45, it could be later into the movie, you realize, ah, oh man, his family was killed in a car wreck. Whatever it might be. Just, and then it just hits, it hits you. In 1 John, we don't know what happened until later. In 1 John 1, uh, or in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John ends up saying, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For, they had belong- for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Can you imagine the hurt feelings, broken relationships, bitter memories in this little church that John was writing to that they must have been experiencing? And aside from that dynamic, there was another dynamic at play. We, we, uh, we, you may not be aware as you, you come to this text, but uh, it's that the group of people who left the church were on the cutting edge of, of the start of a heresy that threatened to undo the church. It would be a heresy that history would later, we would know it as Gnosticism. And this heresy did enormous damage to the church, especially in the second and in the third century. So John, uh, the Apostle John, probably in his 90s, sees what's happening to the church, probably in the area of Ephesus. We just finished studying Ephesians. And John is addressing the churches. There is a, a letter that goes around. It's, they think it went around to a circuit of different churches. But Gnosticism basically said that everything you could see, everything you could touch, all the physical, the material in the world was bad. It was yucky. Icky, but all the spiritual was good. And that was infiltrating into the church in the first century. It would be heard during this time as the church was beginning to grow. They would say something like, well, Jesus appeared to come. He appeared to be a man. uh, But then whenever he's baptized, the Messiah came upon Jesus. And so listen to that one. But before Jesus went to the cross, the Messiah left him. And it was just a man that went up there. And died on the cross. The man Jesus himself was not important. Listen to the Christ that came upon him that was temporarily visiting him. And so you hear John address this kind of thing often in 1 John when he talks about flesh and blood and the importance of the blood of Christ. 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the Spirit of God that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So you see John is addressing this. And so John, the apostle of love, he's later became known as the apostle of love, with a protective love and a steel of spine, writes them a letter to encourage them and to strengthen them. And John, with compassion, wrote to them to let them know that they had it right. They didn't have to be afraid that they had missed something critical about their faith. As a matter of fact, he brings them some very encouraging news. And I bring the encouraging news to you. If you've read First John before, then you have read the encouraging news. But he all he starts it off by giving his credentials that would have that, that would have been so helpful. And it's this. It all hinged on his eyewitness testimony. You see that at the very beginning. So he personally knew Jesus and he had a fellowship with God that they could have as well. So in this time this morning. 
We're going to talk about what it means to walk with God. That's a key theme that we see in the letter. We see fellowship with God as a key theme, as a phrase. Walking with God, we see it in chapter 1. To walk uh, in chapter 2, verse 6, we should walk in the same way in which he walked. And, And I suppose maybe if you've ever heard the phrase, walk with God, uh, I've kind of grown up in the church, and that's just a phrase that I've heard, but I, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say, well, this is what it really means. Like, this, there's some, this is some, these are some handlebars to help you understand. What does it mean to walk with God? I think John kind of lays that out for us here in 1 John 1 through uh, the first part of verse 2. What does that really mean? I suppose it goes back to the garden where Adam and Eve were walking with God. The physical presence of God was, was with them in the garden. And then later in chapter 5, uh, there's a guy named Enoch who lived to be 300 years old. And the text says, somewhat mysteriously, Enoch walked with God and then he was not, for God had taken him. So the picture we have in Scripture is that God wants to have a relationship with his people. He wants to walk with us. So what does that mean? If someone were to ask you, what does it mean to walk with God what would you say? What, or, or what does it mean to have fellowship with God? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? And so at times, I don't know if you've been here, but you feel like you have to pull out your Christianese pocketbook out of your back pocket and kind of thumb through and think, OK, I'm pretty sure that's what it might mean. And say something and cobble something together that just sounds right. And it may be right. But this morning, hopefully, we can have something concrete to show what it means to walk with God. So uh, let's get to it. I'm, I'm simply going to point out from First John what it means to walk with God. They're not exhaustive. There are many other ways to walk with God and what that means. But we find these in our passage that we have before us today. So to walk with God, first of all, means to have a right, relate, a right understanding of Jesus. To walk with God means to have a right understanding of Jesus. And that's from verses 1 through 4. The very beginning, John says, that which was from the beginning. And then a little bit later, he says, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. But John says, that which was from the beginning concerning the word of life. And verse 2, that life was made manifest. So the manifestation of God, that which was eternal, had become flesh and bone. And a moment later, he says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. So you see a right understanding of Jesus. And for these believers in this church was that Jesus was eternal. He was eternal. He was from the beginning. And John is saying to this church family that probably felt like it was on shaky ground, the eternal God. He says, I saw him with my own eyes. He was a real person. So he's not only eternal, but one through four tells us that he was very personal. He was a real person. He's affirming the incarnation of God. John makes it clear. We we saw him. We touched him. And he's claiming the, the authority of the apostles. He says, I was there. We, we heard him. We were witnesses. That which was from the beginning, eternal and timeless. What did the eternal God have to say? What did he say when he came to the earth? John's ears heard him. What would he have heard? Things like, be still. John was there. I mean, John was one of Jesus' best friends. He was in the inner circle. Or be clean. The eternal God telling someone, be clean. Come out. Little girl, arise. Forgive them. John, behold your mother. When he was on his way to the cross. Or I'll never leave you. He's saying you could hear his voice. You could, you could actually watch him work. You could see him sweat. You could see him cry. You could watch him and hear him laugh. You could walk up beside him, drape your arm over his shoulder. You could push him into the bushes. He's a real person. 
The first four verses are such good news for us. You can wrap your arms around the eternal, unchangeable creator of the universe. And Jesus would not have blamed you if you did. The one who spoke the world into existence plays with children and sets them on his lap and has no room for keeping up appearances or being too good for the worst of humans. He wants them all to come to him. Eyes saw him. John is saying, I was there. I saw him. As a matter of fact, John says something similar in the Gospel of John. Towards the end, when he watched, he was the only disciple that went to the cross and he watched Jesus die. And it says that uh, the soldiers spearing Jesus in the side and he watched with his own eyes. At once there came out blood and water. And it's right after that he says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth that you also may believe. He's saying, I saw it. I saw it all. The next morning he went to the tomb. The text says that the other disciple went in, which was John. He went in and he saw and believed. Later that day, he appeared to the disciples. He comes to Thomas. He says, here, give me your hand. Put your hand on my side. Give me your finger. Put it here. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So the good news about Jesus starts with the fact that the eternal God became a man. He was a real person who came and lived. Now, do we have him figured out completely? Of course not. Not in a million years we have him figured out completely, but we know truly what he is like. We can know true things about him, but we will continue to learn more and more about the greatness of Jesus. And he goes on to say, I'm proclaiming this to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, us being the apostles. And he goes further. He says, our fellowship is with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. So remember now, he's encouraging those within this little church. And he's wanting them to know that he has the upper hand on those who left the church and started preaching things that were not true about Jesus. He says, I knew him personally. I had a close relationship with him. I had fellowship with him. And not only that, you can have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father. So, you can walk with God. D.A. Carson says this, because it points out it, and we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. D.A. Carson said, true enduring joy is tied to knowing the God who has disclosed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So to have a right understanding of who Jesus is will bring you joy. So to walk with God means to have a right understanding of Jesus. All right, secondly, to walk with God, we see it in verse 5, means... To have a right reverence for God. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. John begins this pastoral, it's a letter, but it's it's also an argument against those who left the church with a a statement about the nature of God. It's one of the things about John that some of you might find frustrating. That John uses these words, they're kind of nebulous and not necessarily concrete. I heard David Helm say that if you were to, to sit down with the Apostle John, let's just meet him at Starbucks. You go meet John at Starbucks and you sit across the table from him with coffee in hand and you say, all right, John, tell me, what is God like? And John would respond possibly something like, oh, you know what? I've thought a lot about this. God is light. <laughs> I, I, I need more than that. I think I feel like I need more. That it just seems esoteric. It just. And he says in him, there is no darkness at all. But John's understanding was grounded in the Old Testament. Where God was too bright for a man to behold. It actually says that we proclaim to you a message we heard from him. They heard it from Jesus. So 
through John's walking with Jesus, he heard Jesus talk over and over and over again about the purity and the holiness and the grandeur of who God is. It means that there is nothing false in God. It means there's nothing impure in God. He's the source and the measure of all things that are true. We're told in Isaiah 5 that during the most wicked of days, people will call good bad and bad good and darkness They'll call light and light darkness. This is a way of saying that there is a pure and cleansing and good attribute associated with light. So when it says that in God, there's no darkness at all. John is making the claim that God is 100% good. There's nothing evil in him, not even a hint of it. So you may claim or hear people say, or maybe you've said something similar, that uh, why is God letting this happen to me? Why would he let that happen? Or why would... Why, why, why the tsunami in 2004 in the Indian Ocean killing hundreds of thousands of people? Why a failing body? Why cancer? Lying a bit underneath those questions is just a little drop of poison that says God has some bit of evil in him. I mean, is he some sort of mad scientist up there just toying with me and my life? He may be sovereign, he may be all-powerful, but I certainly don't think he's all good. But John leaves no space for that argument. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is basically John's way of saying God is good and evil can have no place beside him. Do you believe that God is holy? I'm sure this was a question that was being presented to this little church. Do you believe he's holy? Do you have a right reverence for God? Because that's what it means to walk with him. To get it right is to understand his greatness and his holiness. And I'm not saying that you get it right all the time. But in general, do you get the sense that this God is a holy other than you? And he's not someone to be trifled with. He is a bright, hot, blazing, holy perfection. Or have you become too comfortable with him? Has your vision of him dulled? Is he now distant? That holiness? Is that distant to you? And it's right here where we begin to see that John is laying out the answer to a problem that should be obvious now to us. Now that he said the eternal God became personal, he was, we could see him, but God is holy and perfect. He's eternal, and, and so this is a, this, there's a blazing purity that exists within God. And the obvious problem is, how can anyone relate to a God that is 100% moral and pure and good and has no darkness at all within him? And that brings me to the third point of what it means to walk with God. It means to have a right approach to sin. To have a right approach to sin. Verses 6 through 10. What do you do with your sin? This is for everybody in here. Because everybody who's ever lived in the history of the world has had to answer the question, what do you do with your sin? Or even if they didn't answer the question, they actually did something with their sin. Did they try to defend themselves? Did they have somebody else defend them? So what do you do with your sin? Well, we have a wrong approach here in verse 6. That those that had left the church had actually begun to practice. So wrong approach number one is in verse six, and it's basically this. It doesn't really matter if we sin. It's not a big deal. It's a small view of sin. It's when we minimize sin. To think that you can know God and still walk in the darkness. This is what their friends who had just left the church were doing. They, they came across as extremely spiritual people. But yet they embraced everything that was darkness. They claimed to have fellowship with Yahweh. That was a big claim. And they made all the claims of being spiritual, but it had no bearing on their lives. So John says, they're lying. The ones that are doing that, they're lying. They're not, they don't live according to the truth. And the same truth remains today. If you claim to know this God, if you claim to have fellowship with him, to walk with him, 
while instead you cherish everything that is dark and you don't think it's a big deal to sin, you lie and you're not living by the truth. So that's the first wrong approach we find in the text, and that's minimizing sin. And we can communicate that sin just isn't a big deal. How often would that be true of you? How often would that be true of me that we just minimize our sin? It's, it's really, there are so much, there are a lot worse people than me. And, and so do we minimize our sin? So that's the first wrong approach, minimizing sin. The second wrong approach we see in verses 8 and 10. Wrong approach number two. We don't really sin. It says if we claim to be without sin, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, that's verse 8. And then verse 10, again, if we say we have not sinned, so the wrong approach to sin, that we really don't have it. We can have sinless perfection. This is something that some people believe. Those actually who had left the church were apparently teaching that they didn't sin. They had achieved sinless perfection. But John here, he is blunt. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. You're just lying to yourself. The truth is not in us. And then verse 10, it actually says, not only are you deceiving yourself, you're calling, you're portraying God as a liar because everything God has said in the scriptures has pointed to the fact that you are a sinner and that you sin. That's the testimony of the scriptures that man has fallen and God is pursuing man to forgive man of his sins. So what is he, what is God even doing if there is no sin? So, is God acting in vain to forgive sins that don't exist? So if you claim you don't, that you don't sin, you're deceiving yourself, the truth is not in you, and then you're also portraying God as a liar. There's a great story about Charles Spurgeon. Uh, when he was a speaker at a conference, this was uh, uh, a, a common, uh, about a generation ago, uh, common for a century ago for, uh, for people to believe that they could attain sinless perfection. And at this minister's conference, uh, the person, the pastor who preached uh, the day before Spurgeon preached about, he basically said uh, that he no longer struggled with sin because uh, he had been perfected in the love of God. And the speaker went on to suggest modestly that he realized this in his own life, that that was what happened to him, that he no longer struggled with sin. So Spurgeon said nothing until the next morning at breakfast time. He crept up behind the man and poured a jug of milk on his head. And he quickly discovered that the man still had his sinful nature. And Matthew Payne wrote of this story on Desiring God's website. He says, you know what, we like this story. It's funny to hear a false teaching being exposed in an amusing way. And I don't know if it's true. It could have been embellished. Spurgeon wrote something similar in uh, his autobiography and some of his writings, but he, uh, but this is, uh, uh, he ends up going, Matthew Payne says, I suspect that our rea- reaction to this is far too smug. It betrays an attitude of self-assurance at precisely the point where we should feel our greatest need. It demonstrates a disturbing lack of concern about the fact that we do sin and that our sin is deeply offensive to God. When we remember this, then it's impossible to gleefully say in our hearts, you stupid perfectionists, of course we all sin. Are we pleased with the situation? Have we forgotten what sin is? And even though we know that it's false, should we not want sinless perfectionism to be true? Should not we want to no longer have to struggle with sin? Don't you long to be freed from sin? So what do we do about it? Do we just pretend that we haven't sinned? Is that how we respond? Is that how a Christian lives his life? Just pretending that that they don't struggle with sin or they don't sin? Is that how you live? Is that you pretend that you don't struggle with sin? Quit kidding yourselves, John says. So what do we do about it? It's a real question. What what do you do about your sin? Verse 7 and verse 9 give us the proper response to sin. So the first right approach to sin, so I gave you two wrong approaches, making light of our sin or 
or uh, saying that we don't struggle with sin. The second, uh, uh, the, the right, the first right approach to sin is in verse seven. And that's living in the light. It says, but if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The alternative in responding, how do you approach your sin, is to walk according to God's revelation, according to God's light. This creates a problem, doesn't it? To walk in God's light, then you start to see the problem. I, Howard Marshall puts it this way. Puts it this way. He says, to live in the light is to come into the sphere where God himself is to be found. Or rather, to live in the same way as God himself. It means to be striving to live as God would live. As I pointed out earlier, interestingly enough, this letter circulated to the churches in the, in the vicinity of Ephesus. And we just finished walking through Ephesus or, uh, Ephesians. And you remember that in chapter 5, right after it says, Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Later, just a few verses later, it says, Walk as children of the light. And John seems to be picking up on that concept for them. God is light. There's no darkness in him. Now walk like you belong to him. Walk as children of God, children of the light. But the paradox here is that as soon as a person does this, you'll become conscious, conscious of your sin. The very thing that separates you from God. It shows up in the light. I've told this illustration, but we have a lot of new people here, so I can tell it again. Uh, we bought a, a vacuum uh, I don't know how many years ago, and uh, probably like five years ago, and uh, I think it was a ninja. Is it a ninja vacuum? What is it? Shark, shark, ninja shark. They have really great names for the vacuum cleaners these days. So it's not it's not the ninja. It's the shark, which is just as tough. Uh, But one of the things about the vacuum cleaner that uh, we noticed is that it had a light on the front of it. Which was really cool. Now we kind of bought, I think Jessica knew this, she knew this was coming, I didn't know, but I thought, ha, it's got a light. And we turned it on, and I'm telling you, that was not good. Because you see how dirty the house is when you turn on a vacuum. When you turn a light on to see the floors, try it, you will see. But the light exposes everything. It was a great Idea, the light on the front of the vacuum to get, to get your house clean. You realize when you're in the light that you have lots of sin. Howard Marshall says of your choices, he says this, whenever this happens, he says, what does one do when his sin becomes exposed? He may simply dodge back out of the circle of light into the darkness because he knows that his deeds are evil and he doesn't want them to be shown up. Nor does he want to be separated from them. Alternatively, he comes, sin and all, into the light. And to his amazement, discovers that the dark blemishes disappear. And the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from sin. In the Old Testament, the blood was the result of the death of the sacrificial victim and its application to the person offering the sacrifice indicated that the effects of that sacrifice applied to him. So the effect of the death of Jesus was to purify us from sin. To say that the blood of Jesus purifies us is to say that our sin is removed and forgiven. Its defiling effects no longer condemn us in the sight of God. Although as Christians who walk in the light, we may be conscious of sin, yet this does not prevent our fellowship with God, for God himself has removed our sin. O sinner, what do you do when your sin is exposed? Do you dodge the light and flee? Or do you bring it out into the light? The second right approach we see in verse 9, it goes right alongside verse 7. It says we confess it freely to God. We don't hold back. We don't hide. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't hide them. We admit them. We confess them. We bring them out in the open. My hope would be that there would be believers in here. If a, if a, 
if they were hooked up to a lie detector test and someone was saying, do you sin? Do you struggle with this and this sin, this sin? Yes, it's all true. All of it. There would be no lying. It would be completely, you would admit everything. We bring it out in the open. We dare to do that. We look at the secret things in our lives, the things that we're ashamed of. We dare to live examined lives. We do not pretend. We look at all the things that show us how sinful our hearts can be. And we confess them because we believe that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Joy Knight says it this way. It says the gospel always includes repentance. But so often we just want a time flux capacitor to take us to the time and place where the gospel has already come into full fruition in our hearts. We would settle for a to-do list to get us there. But Jesus responded clearly to the people who asked for that. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What's God's will for you? To have faith and trust that Jesus is faithful. And he is just. What is his work for you to do in life? It's this. Have faith. Faith that he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, to bring it all out into the open. Like a child who just comes to his mama when he needs something, we continue, must continue to come to to the Father, responding in faith, because we see the desperation of our our need, and we prayerfully walk away from our sin and towards Jesus. What about when confession happens over years and years or over a lifetime? This verse, verse 9, isn't just a piece of if-then logic, cleansing. It takes time. We don't just get over sin. And in places where there's dirt, it, it takes more than one swipe or one rinse. If you're caught in sin or fall to temptation, the most productive, most liberating thing you can do today is stop confess and believe that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and he will not forsake the work that he has started in your life. Don't put it off. Repent now and rejoice in that good news now. All right, lastly, to walk with God means to have a righteous advocate before God. It means to have a righteous advocate before God. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Two words are used here that we're probably not used to using. One, you may have used it some, is advocate. And the other is propitiation. The word for advocate here is only used five times in the New Testament. But it's hard to capture the actual meaning of the Greek word in English. So different translations, if you have a different translation, it may something, say something different. Like uh, helper, or a comforter, or uh, counselor, or companion. The idea, though, is of someone appearing on behalf of, of, of another person in a time of great need, when help is needed most. So you might say the problem here is in First John, John saying, well, we all sin. So should we just keep sinning? Because we know we're going to sin, so we should keep sinning. And John saying, no, I'm writing this, so if you do sin, I, my goal is for you not to sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate But if anyone does does sin, brothers and sisters, we have help. Do you consider yourself to be what the text says right here in verse 1? And that's anyone. If anyone does sin, do you consider yourself a part of that? If anyone does sin? Are Are you included in that? Then it's for you. In the book Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland spends a whole chapter on this verse. He's pointing to 
somebody else who, who actually um, wrote about this, uh, John Bunyan, spent a whole book writing on 1 John 2.1. But Dane Ortland goes, he basically says, all, all of you have Christ. He says that this advocacy is for the here and now. It doesn't say that one day we will have an advocate. It's a current reality. So all of you have Christ. And all that were in this church that John was addressing, they currently had someone. They had someone at that moment speaking on their behalf. And the reason why this person can truly give us the help that we need, the text tells us that he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. The actual language is the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He and he alone can help us. Orland says his advocacy rears up when occasion requires it. The Bible nowhere teaches that once we have once we have been uh, savingly united with Christ, we will find grievous sins to be a thing of the past. On the contrary, it is our regenerate state that has more deeply sensitized us to the horror of our sins. Our sins feel far more sinful after we become believers than they did before. You know what this is saying? If your sins weigh heavy on you, there's a heaviness about you when you sin and you know you sinned. That points to the fact that you actually belong to him. It's an encouragement to the church. You belong. We have the right message. That sin that you feel, that heaviness, that you have an advocate for that. But that that actually even in itself helps you to know, you know, who God is. He's holy and he's he's righteously just and you feel that heaviness. You belong to him, brother. You belong to him. When you feel that heaviness, when you sin, sister, when you feel that sensitivity to sin, this is a, this is this is a, a, the reality that you belong to God. When you know that there's nothing you can do about it, only Christ can save you from that sin. Ortland goes on. He says, sometimes we sin big sins, and that's what Christ's act, advocacy is for. It's God's way of encouraging us to not throw in the towel. So when you sin, and in your mind you think this sin is a big sin, his strength of resolve rises all the higher to meet that need. Again, Ortland says, when his brothers and sisters fail and stumble, he advocates on their behalf because it is who he is. Think about your own life. He says, go, how do you think about Jesus' attitude toward that dark pocket of your life that no one else knows about, only you know about it? Or if it's the bitterness that hasn't faded for years. If it's your lustful eye or your return to pornography or cheating on your taxes or your arrogance at the office or your gossip and slander, your clear hypocrisy when you go to work or when you go to the ball field, your hot temper that just never seems to stop. Who in Jesus, uh, who is Jesus in those moments of spiritual blankness? Or you're at the end of yourself. You think it's too big. Who is he once you conquer that sin? It's not who is he once you conquer that sin, but who is he right now in your failure, in your shame? Who is Jesus right now when you feel like you're going to throw in the towel? The Apostle John says he stands up and defies all accusers. John Bunyan wrote this. He said Satan had the first word, but Christ had the last. Satan must be speechless after a plea of our advocate. Jesus is our advocate, our comforting defender, the one nearer than we know. And his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin. Not after we get over it. Or not once we summon up the strength to be able to overcome that sin. He's right there in the midst of it with you. In that sense, his advocacy is itself the conquering of it. We need not advocate for ourselves. Everyone in the world and throughout history has had to either advocate for themselves and explain their approach to God and their 
approach to sin and how they sinned or why they sinned or whether they sinned. Or they can simply trust the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That one. He's the only one that can do the job. For those of you in here that may not have ever come to a realization that Jesus Christ actually came. He was a real person. The eternal God became a real person. And he came and he walked the earth. And he lived a life of perfection. He healed people of their diseases. He showed people that he had all the power of heaven. And that he showed it on earth when he walked the earth. All the demons and all the satanic, uh, just the, 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 uh, the principalities were, paladies were against him. You could see it clearly. Demoniacs showing up and Jesus walked and he had total and supreme control over them. That that man, Jesus, lived a life that you could not live. And because of your specific sins that you have committed, he went to a cross to die on the cross for your sins. He had done nothing wrong. All of your sins were placed on him at the cross. That is what a Christian believes. That's what it means to walk with God. You have an advocate. It means to confess your sins to God. It means to trust that he is faithful and just. He will forgive you of your sins. We are self-advocating, self-defending by nature. But when you realize that you're advocating for yourself is not good enough, it's not going to cut it. You can't explain it away. You can't excuse your sin. You can't minimize your sin. You will prove that you are a terrible advocate for yourself, but not Jesus. He knows us exhaustively. His incarnation, his infleshing showed us that he was familiar with all of our ways and all of our sin. He knows how far we've fallen. But at the same time, no one can make a better defense than he can. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The propitiation, meaning that Jesus was actually his atoning sacrifice, actually turned, turned God's displeasure into favor for you. That atoning sacrifice for your sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the entire world. It's for anyone who sins. Do you struggle with sin? You may say, Kyle, you don't, you don't get it. I've got some biggins. No one else knows about them. Well, there is one who knows about them. And if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You now and forever will have an advocate next to the Father, speaking to the Father on your behalf. That's what your advocate is for. And he will not shift the blame. He will offer no excuses. The list of accusations against you and me are 100% correct. But the text says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be free from the tyranny of trying to defend ourselves. You see that it says just. I always thought that was odd when I read 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and just. I always kind of wanted it to say he's faithful and loving. Or he's faithful and kind to forgive us our sins. Or he's faithful and merciful to forgive us of our sins. But it says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's why the advocate can, he can come before the Father and say, you are just. It would not be just for you to hold those sins against Kyle because I already died for those sins. The payment has been made. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. John Bunyan put it this way. But what should we do now if we didn't have an advocate Yes, if we had not one who would plead. Yes, if we had not one that could prevail and that would faithfully execute that office for us. Why? We must die. But since we are rescued by him, 
let us, as to ourselves, lay our hand over our mouth and be silent. Do not put off your sin. Do not minimize. Do not try to explain it away. Do not pretend that you have it all together. Stop defending yourself. Raise no defense. Go to the one who is the only one able to defend you because he has the wounds to show that it has been paid for. Go to Christ. That's what it means to walk with God. Let's pray together. God, we come to you, we first want to say thank you for giving us this text. We thank you that you felt it critical that we know the true identity of Jesus. You wanted us to know what's, how, to, how to respond to our sin in light of who you are. We thank you that you've provided a way, that you've shown us in, in the word that we can't defend ourselves. And you've given your son, not only as a sacrifice to pay for our sins, as that atoning sacrifice, but he lives today pleading to you on our behalf, even when we think we've blown it worse than anyone else has ever blown it. We thank you that you are faithful and that your word says that you are just. We cling to the promise that you will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And with John, we can in awe say, where did the love like this come from? That we would be called sons of God. And that is what we are. And we thank you. And we thank you for what it costs you. We pray these things in your son's name and by your spirit. Amen.